Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm your host, Rafe Kelly. At Evolve Move Play, our aim is to help you cultivate a more meaningful life and a more heroic self by reconnecting deeply to movement, mindfulness, nature, and community practices. This podcast was created to bring the best and brightest minds in all of these subjects together to better understand how we can create an empowering and sustainable ecology of practices for personal growth. If you're interested in being part of this ongoing conversation, the best way you can support us and get involved is by joining our Podcast Plus membership. By joining, you will get backstage access to our live podcast airing once a month, as well as a private question and answer session with me and our guests after the show. On top of that, you'll get access to our thriving online community where you can continue these deeper discussions with people all over the world who are just as passionate and curious about these topics as you. More details about the membership as well as the link to get signed up are in the description below. And whether you can join, be sure to like, share, subscribe, and hit that bell icon so that you can be notified every Monday when our episodes drop. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the show. Excellent. Okay. And we are live. Mike, welcome. Hey, man. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me, buddy. I've been, I've been super excited about this. I have to say, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Awesome. Yeah, me too. It's been, it's a real pleasure to, over the last year to get to know you. And uh, yeah, it's just exciting to be able to share a conversation with you. Same here, man. And I am, I have to say, I'm, I'm pretty bummed. I was really hoping I could make it to return to the source this year. But next yeah. year, it's next on. year, I'm there. Next year. I'm gonna, it's already in my schedule. I'm already putting it in. Well, thank you for the segue. Exact dates. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll give you. The, it'll be same, around the same time. Um, okay. Well, that's a nice segue for me because I did want to announce before we get started that uh, Return of the Source is sold out. Um, we do have spots left for the autumn retreat, so they'll you know follow all the links in my bio, whatever. Go to our website if you want to join us for a retreat, as Mike does. Um, which is thank you so much for for doing that for me, Mike. Um, but yeah, Mike is the the founder of Animal Flow. I imagine most everybody knows you. I mean, I feel like you're one of the, the bigger names in the community here. And um, but if not, you know, Animal Flow is a ground based movement system that's taught primarily, you know, indoors, and that has really, I think, spread a deeper understanding of the importance of moving on the ground and quadrupedal movement. Spread really a deeper understanding of how to engage with flow and a lot mm. of really beautiful things in the fitness community. So just wanted to give people that background. Um, but I don't like when I'm being interviewed, I hate being asked, so what is animal flow or what is the evolved move play and how did you start? So I don't want to start there. What I want to start with instead is what are you in love with in movement right now? Okay. So that is such a great question. But before I jump into that question, I just want to I want to go back a step or two and that that was an excellent intro the only thing i want to change is hopefully animal flow isn't predominantly practiced indoors okay. um we we certainly encourage everyone to do it outdoors as much as possible uh, unfortunately here it's just now getting uh to where the weather is beautiful in, in boulder and uh the outdoor training is like prime right now but yes it can be practiced indoors it can be practiced outdoors it can be practiced anywhere anywhere yeah. anytime well, yeah i think I think where I was going with that, and, and, and thanks for the correction, is just that what's cool about it to me is that it fit, it, it fits well for people who are coming from fitness, right? Yeah. It's something that they can they they can plug in. It's like if you're if you're if you've been a gym bro for a long time and you want to get into movement, um, Animal Flow is this amazing piece that's like 
I can just do it in the gym where I am. And, uh, and so that, that's, that's where I was going with that. But, but absolutely. I love the videos of you out in nature and, and, um, and yeah, it's, it's amazing on a, on a field of grass or, or wherever you want to do it. Yeah. Or yeah. And, and yeah, of course. And the beach is actually the hardest, man. It's so funny. We <laughs> see people, you know, people submit videos or, or share videos all the time of them flowing on the beach. And I'm always like, wow, that's amazing. That looks great. And how bad does that suck? You know, <laughs> because it's just, you don't have the same, the same communication, right? So you don't have yeah. the same reaction. You don't have the same ground reaction force coming back into your body. Uh, it's not as responsive as the, the actual ground or grass or wood or concrete. So it is quite challenging. It looks amazing. It is quite challenging. Not, a, not that the ch added challenge is a bad thing at all, but, uh, but yeah, the beach is such a fun place to float. Um, I'm just going off on tangents now, but uh, to go back to your, your previous question what am i in love with now in movement in the movement space yeah i would i would say i would say what i'm in love with right now would be uh continuing to explore and you know we we have a mutual friend alex who owns block 1750 here in boulder and they have created such an amazing space there and you know their their common uh phrase is come as you are and I don't know that I've ever been to another dance studio that really embodies that, that really lives that because anyone is welcome to come in and at any level of proficiency and just feel welcome and feel at home. So from the moment that I arrived here in Boulder, I started going to his breakdancing classes there. And then of course, once you're in the door, then you start to explore other things. So contemporary and modern dance, uh, start to explore other floor work workshops, start to explore other styles of dance. So I'm definitely in that phase right now of, of my movement journey where I'm just really enjoying exploring different things and being novice at a lot of different things. And uh, to me, that's like, what a great gift. What a great gift to be able to think that you have a decent understanding of your relationship with your body and then go do something that just exposes just what a beginner you are and just really allows you to, you know, keep a child's mind and leave the ego behind. And there's just something so pure and exciting about that. Yeah. I love that. I love that answer. As I, as I was listening to, I listened to a bunch of podcast interviews of you to kind of really get familiar with your perspective before this. And that was something that's really striking to me, right? Like, you know, I've known about you for, I guess, a decade. And, you know, you have a really successful brand, you know, you're associated with being really, really good at what you do, right? Like you can make a, an animal flow video and it'll look incredibly beautiful. And then recently on your social media, you're, you're posting videos of you struggling through a contemporary dance sequence. And, you know, it's better than most people struggle, like, let's be honest. But for you, compared to where you're in your strength, that's, that's probably feels really awkward. It, it does. And it feels super awkward in the best way. And, you know, I have to say, just to give you a little bit of background on how I even came to animal flow and how I began my movement journey. I had, I had been working as a personal trainer and lifting weights and doing traditional styles of exercise my entire life. I mean, that was something that I did with my friends and my dad growing up. And it wasn't until I was about to turn 30, I started getting into movement training. And, you know, even, even from that from that point, I was, had spent, you know, almost close to, you know, whatever, 15 years seriously doing exercise, exercise stuff, working on my body, but I was shocked at how bad I was at actually working my body. Like I was just, I, I felt disconnected in so many different ways, even though, 
you know, I was, I had lots of experience in kettlebell training, Olympic training, weightlifting, et cetera. Uh, but it was just like, all right, now all I have to do is manage this thing, my body, and I have to do it in multiple ways and coordination, you know, is an aspect of it. I have to sequence different movements. And I was just so shocked at how terrible I was at gymnastics, how terrible I was at parkour, how terrible I was at breakdancing when I first started. And where I thought initially like, oh man, this is going to totally turn me off of movement, right? This is going to make me go back to the thing that I'm good at, that I've spent all of these years conditioning. It was quite the opposite. So I, I just realized at that point, I'm like, man, I have to get deeper into this. I have to really see this through. And that was the thing that really, it was the catalyst for me basically making the commitment to spend the rest of my life exploring movement. So I'm certainly not someone who's a stranger to being terrible at new things. Um, and, and I'm quite comfortable with it, especially now, because you know I've gone through phases of maybe I'll only train animal flow for a couple of years and then I'll start to train some other things. And uh, I'm just always so shocked, one, how, how much more I can continue to learn the animal flow system, but then also how much better I become at understanding that stuff when I explore more and start to increase my movement vocabulary. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I, um, I love it when I see people who can take on that novice mind. And I think it's, it's, it's a testament to character to be able to do that once you become successful, especially. Um, the, I, I've thought about this idea for a long time that there's kind of like two traps within a movement practice, right? The trap of the generalist and the trap of the specialist, right? And the specialist becomes good at something. And then there's the reward for being good at something. And then they go try something else. And it's, it's hard, right? Yeah, it's it, you're awkward, you're never going to be, you know, you're, you're, you're the king of the mountain over here. And then you go any other mountain you want to climb, you got to start from the base. And having come one mountain does help you climb, but you still start from the base. Um, yeah. But the flip side I found is that some people are kind of dilettantes where they 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 reach the point in a practice that it that it gets hard that reaching the next level of mastery is difficult and a lot of times as particularly talented athletes they can go find another sport and get better at it quicker than the next person mm -hmm. and so they just bounce from sport to sport without ever like pursuing one thing to that point of mastery and so i'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on like how do we navigate those two poles, the, the attraction to staying within something and then the attraction to jumping out of things just because they've gotten difficult. And how do those, mm -hmm. you know, how do you see that as helping develop people's character? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. So I <laughs> think that's a, that's a great jumping off place for sure. Yeah. You know, and it's, I, I love that you mentioned this journey of self-mastery because that to me is, is it's something that I think about every single day and every single day that we spend in our bodies is another opportunity for us to learn more about how our bodies work and how to navigate them and inhabit them better. So every single day, you know, and you've also, I've also heard the saying of, you know, or different, different ways to paraphrase this, but, you know, essentially a life of self-mastery is a life of discomfort. So, getting used to being really, really uncomfortable in your pursuit of something, whether it be skill acquisition, whether it be, you know, uh, being an artist or writer, it maybe it be in finance, whatever it is, whenever you find your point yourself at a point where you are, things become easy, 
you feel like um, you can tune out versus tune in. You feel like things are coming exceptionally uh, frictionless. Then I think that you're, that's a very dangerous place to be because as you know, as you know, as someone who is really dedicated to their movement practice, we always have to be in this state of working just outside of our limits because otherwise our bodies don't have any need to adapt and progress. You know, our bodies are adaptation machines. They find in any given opportunity, they find the way to become more efficient at any given task. They try to conserve energy. They take the path of least resistance, our bodies. So for us to mentally take control and say, all right, if this is the thing at which I, the level at which I've reached to where things start to become easy, they become um, effortless, then I need to push and I need to go further and I need to go further and I need to go further. If the adaptation or if the challenge, the stimulus is too great, then our body can't adapt fast enough. And that's maybe where injury happens or burnout happens, or we lose our passion for the thing. But there's that sweet spot, right? There's that little bit that, that however, however many degrees extra, whatever percentage extra that you have to work towards that skill outside of your comfort zone to continue to grow. And I think that ebbs and flows. So I've definitely seen in my, my, in my own practice where uh, sometimes I feel, I feel stale. Sometimes I feel like I'm regressing. Sometimes I feel like things are coming too easy and I have to take a step back and reassess the whole situation and see what it might be that, that, will, that will push me to continue to grow. So to go back to that idea of a generalist versus being a specialist, I think that there is something definitely to be said about being a specialist in any endeavor. So getting to know the thing. But as you mentioned earlier, by being a generalist, and especially when we're talking about movement capacity, if I can increase my movement literacy by learning lots of different things, that's cool. However, if I don't have the ability to take all those different things I'm learning and actually apply them into a practice, then am I actually growing? Or am I just choosing my, you know, am I increasing my ability to have varied play and varied exposure to movement? So yes and yes do we need to be <laughs> do we need to be specialists yes do we need to be generalists yes 100 percent. but i think the thing is when you find whatever the pursuit is that really stimulates you that really resonates with you that's the thing that you need to see through um and so maybe it is that you have this one course that you really really like and that's the thing that, that encourages you and inspires you to grow and then you do other things to really create more of a well-rounded um, human movement practitioner, but I think you have to have both. Yeah, I like that. I, I think that sometimes the, the idea of the generalist becomes too, uh, you know, we, we were, we were way too specialized when it came to the, the fitness world, let's say in the 1990s mm -hmm. and then the eighties and the nineties, and then CrossFit comes along and the idea of the generalist, and then there's, you know, and there's MoveNet and all that stuff. And, and then there's this almost opposite pull where, we're having some kind of specialty is almost looked down mm. upon, right? Mm -hmm. But I sort of think of myself as like a generalist with a specialty, right? Like I, yeah, I can, I can fight, I can lift, I can do acrobatics, I can, you know, I've done all sorts of grappling, I've done some dance, I've done this, but people know me because of the way that I move through the natural world, right? And that's like that's my, that's my unique sort of element to my voice as a mover. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I was thinking about this in relationship to like people's temperaments and, and their bodies, even like human beings, you look at like a pack of wolves 
uh, and you look at a, a group of human beings, the human beings are much more physically diverse, right? They're, they come in a bigger variety of shapes. And uh, Jordan Peterson was talking about like, well, why do some people have very open personalities and some people have closed personalities? And some people are really sensitive to negative emotion and some people are really stable and some people are really uh, agreeable and some are disagreeable, right? And you're saying, it's because we operate really like as a social group and that having a group mind, it's helpful to have all these poles occupied. And I'm saying the same thing's true really in our physical ability. Like if you have a village full of people, it's like, it's really useful to have one guy who's just huge and powerful and can move something heavy. And he's better at that than everyone else. And it's useful to have one guy who's like slender and fast and can run to the next village. But there's also always the problem that if you become if you become the guy who's so big and so strong, but also can't run, then you're holding the group back mm -hmm. and vice versa. So it's like, we wanna cultivate the capacity to be a human being, but also we wanna be able to find that aspect of the movement that's unique to us, that where we have something to give, right? Some, yeah. some special uh, thing to, to give back to. So that, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's what I had to share on that. But um, yeah, and you, know, you you bring up some really great points there. And, and one of the ways that, you know, we have these infinitely complex human bodies that we get to inhabit. And we're so lucky to be in these in these these incredible physiques. And, you know, the thing is, we have all these capabilities. So we have all these possible biomotor abilities. And, you know, when you're looking at this spectrum of abilities that, that we have or that we could potentially have, you have strength, power, speed, endurance, coordination, stability, mobility, flexibility, you know, all mm -hmm. of these illities. And um, most often people will tend to go towards the practice that really allows them to feel strong and capable and successful. So if someone has the ability to be strong and, and show their, their strength potential, then they'll most often go towards strength building exercises or things that elicit strength, right? Um, whereas you have someone who already maybe has a, a tendency to be more pliable, malleable, maybe they find themselves in a, a dance or a yoga uh, endeavor because that allows them to be stable, mobile, flexible, et cetera. You know, one of the things that I love when looking at the, that spectrum and looking at opportunity is you go, wow, if we want to be these complete physical humans, what can we do to, in order for us to condition all those different abilities? And if you can find one thing that would help you do that, wow, that's fantastic. Especially if you like it, that's even better. You know, so if you're having something that, because, you know, let me take a step back and just one of the things that I think bothers me in the movement community is sometimes you hear people almost over romanticize this idea of, well, all you have to do is move. Mm -hmm. And yes, there is some truth to that. Moving is better than not moving. But I still think that you have to keep a lens of what is, what is it that I'm trying to get out of this? So even when you look at like I know you, you, you talk a lot about play and I know that you exercise uh, this concept of play and the philosophy of play. So even when you're looking at play, you get to, to, to step back and go, all right, well, even if we take away the fun part, because fun is so big, right? Fun is so, such a huge part of how we experience our human bodies, but also look at it and say, okay, if I'm watching someone play this particular game, how can I break it down into, all right, well, is this a listening, uh, an opportunity to create endurance, to create coordination, to create speed or, 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 or increase a skill. 
So I'm not saying that all movement has to have a specific focus, but it does give you the opportunity to look at where deficits may be in their overall training program. You know, so we can start to say, all right, cool. I'm doing a lot of this style of training, but maybe I'm not doing a lot of strength. Maybe I'm not doing a lot of endurance. And then I can start to really look at how I can pick different endeavors or pursuits to start fill in, start filling in those little gaps or deficits within my overall spectrum of abilities. So, um, so yes, I, I think that the only reason I brought that up is because we were talking about, um, you know, the specialist versus the generalist. So yeah. yeah, generalist is absolutely, there are certain, certainly benefits to that, but having a direction and knowing what that direction is and seeing if that particular direction will actually increase your capacity to be a higher functioning human. You just have to have some awareness around that. Yeah. I, I, I think this question of a direction or an orientation is really key. And I, I don't think that either play or movement are sufficiently complete. Right. Yeah. Um, and that was something I went through. So I, you know, I kind of, uh, was doing gymnastics. I wanted to be a gymnastics coach. And then I got into parkour and went deep in parkour, got really into the, what is the philosophy of parkour? And I was like all about mm -hmm. being able to move efficiently. And, and then it was like, well, there's no, there was no, there was no incentive structure on that really. And so I was like, everyone was, everyone was going to the acrobatics. The acrobatics were, were, were winning the YouTube battle. It was like, we're supposed to be anti-competition, but everyone was competing for views, right? So it was like, let's set up competitions that are about speed and efficiency and see if we can actually really test this thing and make it alive. Like, don't, don't say you're about this and not do it. So we'll, we'll create speed. And so I created some of the first speed competitions of our core, and then I competed in them. Um, and that was really motivational for a period of time. And then there was this point at which it just stopped motivating me. Mm -hmm. And part of it was that all the competitions were indoors and I wanted to be outdoors. And then even outdoors, I didn't want to be in the urban environment anymore. I wanted to be in the natural environment. It's like, that's where my passion was. So I like followed my passion out into the woods and I was doing a lot of research on play at the time. So it was like, I just threw all the structure away and just, just like, what do I want to do today? How do I want to move? And interestingly, initially that was really productive. Like I started progressing a lot, all of a sudden. And then there was this point at which my body kind of didn't keep up with the skills. And I, I wasn't, mm. I didn't have the physical, I didn't have the biomotor abilities to play that I wanted to play the way that I wanted to play anymore. And I was starting to get, starting to get injured and maybe even a sense of sort of um, apathy, I guess. Mm. And it was then that I started sort of thinking really philosophically about what, it, what is this all about? Like what, what's it, what it's more than just having fun, right? Because if we just wanted to have fun, we could, we could do cocaine and go to Las Vegas, right? Like, <laughs> like fun, fun is good, but it can, but it, it can be manipulated, right? Like video games are fun. You can, you can, you can, you can play yourself to death with video games. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it wasn't quite that. And that's when I started like thinking about this idea of the heroic self and self-transcendence and self-mastery. Um, so this idea is really valuable. And I think when you have that, that lens of I'm going towards something. And then the other lens that I, that I really like is the natural movement lens, right? Because we, we, all movements are not equally valuable, right? I don't know if you remember, um, the the first journal first crossfit journal did you read that back in the day i did not know okay 
Well, they talked about these three models of fitness. There's the 10 biomotor abilities that the guy from Dynamax created that you mentioned earlier. There is uh, development across the three metabolic pathways, anaerobic, aerobic, and or phosphagen, uh, glycolytic, and aerobic, right? But the last one was like, imagine an infinite set of physical tasks. The athlete who performs best across all of them is the best athlete. That's basically the model. They're called the infinite mm -hmm. hopper model. And at the time I was like, that's, that's pretty cool. But some tasks are more physically relevant than others. Yeah. And, and, the, and the things that you're selecting to exercise don't look like the most relevant. Like if it's really about being able to overcome the things that are relevant, you have to think about what's, what's our evolution. But like, how come there's no fighting? How come there's no escaping? Like these are the things that you've always had to do as a human being. So that's, that's what I like is that, that idea of, of, I think when you add natural to movement, it gives you a much stronger paradigm. Question for you. Uh, I would love to hear you. How do you define natural movement? So when you're explaining it to someone else, can you give me mm -hmm. the elevator pitch of natural yeah, movement? Yeah. 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 I mean, natural is a weird word, actually. I, I don't love it sometimes because it's, it's loaded with so many things, right? If you are, if you're a conservative Christian, nature is what God uh, said it should be, right? And, and something even that might occur in the animal kingdom could be viewed as unnatural. And, um, and then we have the naturalistic fallacy that something that is, is natural is good necessarily. But the way that I think about it is that there is no, there's, no, there's not really unnatural. There's only more and less natural, right? And, and that has to do with how long things have been part of our evolutionary experience. So, so concrete is artificial, right? It is, it is a product of human artifice. Um, and it has, and your body is not designed to move across concrete the way that it's designed to move across natural terrain um, because concrete is a very recent innovation. And so it's about how long something has been part of, how much your evolution has shaped you to be in relationship with something. The natural world is the thing that is, that's been around forever and that your, your inherent nature is designed to reflect. So you can, um, you know, you can use a guitar as a hammer, but it doesn't work very well, right? A guitar has been designed to, to, um, be to be played, right? And so it's like, well, a human has a nature. And, and so the question is, well, what is that nature and where does it come from? And I think you can only understand that when you put it within an evolutionary frame. And then, then things get really interesting because you could say something like throwing is natural to a human being. And in fact, we're the greatest throwers in the animal kingdom, but throwing is really evolutionary recent and our shoulders can't tolerate throwing nearly as well as they tolerate hanging and swinging, which is, mm -hmm. you know, really old for us. So, so that's, I mean, it's not a, I don't, I, I don't think I have the perfect answer to that question, but I think hopefully it's I think a that was place to start. I think that was an excellent answer. I think yeah. that was as close to perfect as I was hoping for. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure, have you heard of Philip Beach, Dr. Philip Beach, who wrote I've a book heard. called Muscles and Meridians? I've heard of him. I'm not familiar with him. So very much speaks about, uh, about archetypal postures and how from an evolutionary perspective, um, the further that we get away from archetypal postures and natural movement, then the more that we see uh, degeneration of our bodies and tissue and joints, et cetera. 
And, you know, that's one of the things that we, we talk about quite often when talking about uh, free movement. So, you know, free movement, and in my opinion, is just moving the body in all planes of motion at all joint angles as much as possible mm-hmm. and having the capacity and ability and drive to do so. You know, and, and one of the things that, that we have to recognize, I know this is something that, that you're uh, talking about or alluding to quite often, is that we are not experiencing our bodies the way that they have continued to evolve uh, over time and that we're not honoring the system the way in which we should. And so, you know, quite often people spend their entire lives, especially nowadays, living in linear directions, living in sagittal plane dominant lives, right? And so we're, everything that we do is almost in one direction. We go to the gym, we run on a treadmill in one direction, you know, we push weights around in one direction. And it's just important for people to realize that everything in our body adapts to those unidirectional movements, you know, so that's, again, that's the, the fascia, the tendons, the ligaments, the muscles, the nervous system, everything, the, our, our, our stagnated thinking, you know, everything ad- adopts and adapts to this, this style of, of, of uh, linear motion. So the best thing that we can do, in my opinion, one of the greatest things that we can do, one of the easiest things that we can do is find something that allows us to move in all directions, find something that we enjoy that allows us to move our, our joints in all the directions that they, we could possibly experience them in. And then we're starting to truly, truly honor the system in the way it was designed. But then also we're setting ourselves up for longevity. We're setting ourselves up to be more resilient humans. And, and, you know, the thing that really stuck with me from the time that I began my movement journey is that concept of to train to last, you know, train today for the body that you want to inhabit, not only tomorrow, not only for your summer six pack abs, but you know, for 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, because let's face it, I mean, God willing, it'll be a long time from now, but when we're laying on our deathbed, we won't, you know, everything else has come and gone. All we have left is the body that we're inhabiting and the way in which we treated our bodies over those years will certainly dictate how we experience our bodies in our later years. And we may no longer be into kettlebell training. We may no longer be into animal flow. We may no longer be into whatever, but we're still going to be in our bodies. And our bodies are an accumulation of the loads and stressors we've experienced through a lifetime. So, you know, one of the greatest things that we can do is learn how to move it in all directions at all the time. Yeah, so I'm, I wanted to dig into why the ground is so important to you, right? Yeah. And, and how that interrelates to that. Cause you know, we were, we were joking a little bit before the, the podcast about the Equinox video of animal flow from uh-huh. 2010 or something. And like the initial reaction of the parkour community to that was, was kind of pretty negative. And, you know, I think part of that's like parkour guys tend to be pretty anti-capitalist and, and we're very proprietary. It's like, Oh, someone's coming into our space. Um, and, and I've had this thing about like, there's so much drive within the movement community and within the fitness community that's connected to movement about locomotion. And when they talk about locomotion, Mm -hmm. it's always just the ground, right? It's always just quadrupedal movement. And for me, it's like, well, where's the sprinting and jumping and, and, and swinging. Mm -hmm. But as I'm listening to you and, you know, as I've seen how open-minded you are and how, like, how global your perspective is, I'm getting more and more curious about what you put into that and what you're seeing mm. is so valuable in the ground. 
And I also, I did your class at, at the embodiment conference and it felt wonderful. And I was like, oh, there's, he's, he's got some interesting ingredients here, right? Yeah. Um, so I want you to talk a little bit about how just the ground, just getting down on the ground helps you achieve what you just mentioned. Awesome. I'm glad you asked that. Um, because it is the thing that still excites me about, about just getting on the floor. And it can be getting on the floor to do animal flow. It can be getting on the floor to do more contemporary dance or do more floor work. But, you know, the ground is such, it's such an intuitive place for us, even though we may be very disconnected from it. So maybe there have been years since we've actually spent time on it, but it's still innately in our system. It still is a safe place. We just have to be reintroduced to it, most of us. So whenever you look at baby, baby's communication with the ground. So just the act of crawling, learning how to crawl, you know, you're looking at in baby's brain, what's happening. So starting to stimulate and organize neurons that are going to be really important for cognitive um, abilities, like comprehension, concentration, reading, uh, the cross, cross lateral motion is going to be very important for strengthening communication between left and right hemisphere of the brain, which will be really important for reading, even just looking off into the distance and back at the hands. Um, con increasing condition of binocular vision will, of course, have a play in um, hand eye coordination, which will be huge for reading, writing and sports activities. There's just so much going on in our neurodevelopmental stages as we contact and manipulate our bodies uh, in conjunction with the ground. But there's this huge gap between like, once we actually stand up and we're these upright bipedal human beings, we never return to this. Most often don't return to this thing that was so influential and so important to our development. Why? So going back to the floor and since, you know, from the moment that I started learning and, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but I, I you know, I, I was introduced to break dancing 12 years ago. And I have to say, I, I never, I've, I've never been good at breaking ever. <laughs> but I learned so much. And one, again, was the power of the floor. And I knew intuitively, as soon as I put my hands and feet on the ground, I was like, oh, man, there's something here. There's something here that I need to explore. It was like coming home. So since then, there have been you know, a couple of different studies done on, on animal flow. One of them was um, quadrupedal movement training improves markers of cognition and joint repositioning. So this was a study that was done, I think, uh, four years ago, if not longer time. It doesn't make sense to me any longer. But uh, in this study, they took, you know, a group of people and took them through a four week quadrupedal movement training program where they used animal flow. And they did a test to check markers of cognition. And just within four weeks, they had a noticeable increase in markers of cognition. So it's not just and that was, you know, something that I had already felt intuitively. Um, they were proving that that ground contact, moving hands and feet in contact with the ground doesn't just stimulate your body. It doesn't just stimulate your nervous system. It's not just a great way to work out, but it actually engages your brain and how it processes information. And that's really, really cool to me. But it's not just, you know, that's, that's one little aspect of the ground training. The other thing that really excited me was the load profile. And so when I say load profile, I'm talking about how gravity is loading our tissue. So most of the time as people navigate their lives or even when they're seated or, or walking around driving, we're being axially loaded by gravity. So gravity is loading us from the top down as it pulls downward towards the earth. So we're essentially being bathed in gravity's pull in one direction for the majority of our existence. When you 
become quadrupedal and you place your hands and feet in contact with the ground, whether you're prone or supine, so stomach up or stomach down, you create a very, very unique load profile for the tissues and the joints within your body. So hands and feet in contact with the ground, keeping either the knees or the hips off of the floor and beginning to navigate and manipulate your body in space in relation to gravity's downward pull. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff happening there that you wouldn't typically experience being upright bipedal or be able to replicate in the gym. So there are some really, really unique load profiles going on. But then also <clears throat> when we're looking again at how we can stimulate communication and connection within the body, we have all of these sensory receptors. And so I always like to talk about sensory receptors as these little satellites that are in our skin, they're in our soft tissues, they're in our joints, and they're always sending information back to the central nervous system about our place in space, about our body's relationship to itself and the relationship to the external environment, um, temperature. And one great way to stimulate these little sensory receptors or satellites, if we're using that as, an, uh, as a connection, is load. And a great way in which we can load them is by positioning ourselves in relation to gravity to where we're experiencing tension throughout the entire body as a global unit. So we're not just trying to lift a weight, we're trying to actually hold our system off the ground in a closed chain environment where we're trying to, again, manipulate our body in space. And so by doing so, all of those sensory receptors or a high number of those sensory receptors become activated and they're now sending information so that our brain can make a better 3D map of where we are in space. And we start to see that that better communication connection and function, or sorry, better communication connection can potentially carry over to the function of other things that you do. So that was something that we, we saw as um, anecdotal in performing animal flow where we would go, oh, wow, I feel like more connected. I feel like more in my body. I feel like uh, I can go out and, and do something else because I'm because I'm super energized. Um, and then we had another guy, but um, who ran a study, uh, Jeff Buxton, about the effects of novel quadrupedal movement on. I wrote this down because I always forget it's a long title. On functional movement, range of motion, muscular strength, and endurance. And um, again, quite favorable to show that. Just quadrupedal movement training. I'm not saying that there's something magical about animal flow. I'm just saying if you get on the ground, fight, resist, fight gravity's resistance and manipulate your body in space, you can start to get these responses that the likelihood of them carrying over into other, other endeavors is much higher. Awesome. So I, I love the description. I think the idea that, you know, again, if we think about we can think about movement from an evolutionary perspective and also from a developmental perspective. And in either perspective, uh, quadrupedal movement is kind of the beginning, right? We're tetrapods. Mm -hmm. So we were designed, we were fish, we're swimming and, you know, and, and then, and then we started to use our fins to push us around on the surface and that became our limbs. And so we start with this, um, you know, spine horizontal, uh, sort of structure. And then we start, we start coordinating our limbs on top of that. And, in fact, if you look at the way a human being walks, you can see that that it's still actually using the same cross lateral patterning bipedally mm -hmm. that we use when we're when we're on all fours. And then developmentally, crawling precedes everything, right? Or moving around on your belly and butt scooting and all these things, but being on the ground. Um, and my friend, do you know Todd Hargrove? No, no, uh, yeah, you might enjoy his stuff. He has a book called Better Movement, but um, but he talks about primal movements as, as this aspect because they also they constrain degrees of freedom in a really interesting way that helps us 
tune into the body, right? Mm -hmm. um, you get better kind of better ability to, to recognize movement that works, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I'm, I'm intrigued by that. And I, I do think there's some magic to, to, to animal flow specifically. And I think that, 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 uh, that we'll get into that, but, but I want to ask like, well, how do you see this showing up in other places that have the same thing? So, or have similar things, right? So you, you say, okay, we want the ground moving in other planes of motion other than the axial and, 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 and upright. Well, that happens in jiu-jitsu, right? Or wrestling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or if we're, if we're talking about, you know, loading both arms and legs at the same time, that's going to be happening in climbing. And then in parkour, mm -hmm. we're not spending the whole time on our hands and feet, but all the vaults involve that. Yeah. That coordination and the passing under things and rolling and so I, I'm, I'm curious how you see the benefits what of those benefits are say descriptive of all of this class of things versus what's maybe specific to to the quadrupedal movement and or or what might be happening in those other things that takes away from some of those benefits that you're specifically getting there yeah so i think in hearing that question i'm going to i want to sidestep and say, say that I actually, animal flow, and I'm happy to say this, is one opportunity to experience a variety of movements. Mm -hmm. Is it all encompassing? Absolutely not. So I am a firm believer that you should be able to run, jump, swing, hang, climb, grapple, all of those things. So I am 100% on board with that and actually, in my idea of what getting higher towards the pinnacle of flow, I would love to be able to experience my body as having a very strong ground game, a very strong bipedal game, a very strong aerial game, and a very strong hanging, climbing, and swinging game. So to me, to have flow in all of those different uh, areas or arenas that to me is now you're starting to get towards the the pinnacle of mastery of movement and the pinnacle of of flow potential yeah well obviously i agree with that that's right in my <laughs> my wheelhouse um but I, i'd like to go back to to the, the question of um so i I'm, I'll, I'll try to answer my own question right which is yeah. if i if i if i'm a jujitero and I try something like, like animal flow. Well, I'm already getting a lot of that, but I'm getting it in a context where I'm constantly in a hundred percent, like all of this muscular tension, right? All of this patterning into uh, like a compressed ball shape, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. If, it, if, if I'm doing parkour, then I'm getting these huge um, eccentric loading all the time. And that might, that might, that might not be something that I, that I, that I can tolerate more of, but I might be able to go get some benefits in this other place that's getting some of these connections. Um, mm -hmm. So I do think that there's there's these places where we, if we can, like with, with my own practices, I'm always trying to say, okay, I think there's this really big value here. But then I say, well, well, how much can you go get that in something that has nothing to do with me? It's like, okay, it's locomotion. Well, that's parkour, but that's also military heptathlon and, and, and gymnastics mm -hmm. and track and field. Mm -hmm. Like what what is what is universal beneficial across all those and what can i actually say is, is is unique and then could i even recognize the thing that's uniquely valuable about the about that piece that i don't do that i'm that i might want to point an athlete to who needs it yeah yeah right totally understand that so there there are two things that come up for me there 
One is the, the mindful connection to self. And, you know, as, as you know, so many of us are disconnected from our bodies. So our attention is everywhere else, right? So we're thinking about stress at work. We're thinking about the pandemic. We're thinking about relationship. We're thinking about our phone, our computers. There are so many stimulants out there that are, are competing for our attention. Quite often when people would go into a gym um, scenario or to go in workout, they then bring their attention on an external object. So I'm going to bring my awareness to this kettlebell, barbell, dumbbell, whatever, treadmill. And I'm going to think about either running along it or moving this thing from point A to point B. It doesn't take a lot of mindful body awareness to perform those movements other than checking in on form and technique. I'm not saying that it doesn't take form and technique to perform those movements, however. But whenever we're looking at this opportunity to connect to take the invitation to come back into our system, the ground is such a great place to do that. Because whenever we have hands and feet in contact with the ground and we're starting to think about creating these motor movement puzzles, whatever they may be, we're starting to really take accountability for how we inhabit our bodies. And it's an excellent place to learn. Now, not to say that you're not going to have total awareness when you're rolling with somebody else or when you're about to, you know, jump a giant gap or, you know, uh, whatever it may be or, or vault something. There's ultimate awareness there as well. But sometimes I think that we see people look at the end goal, which is, you know, um, can I be the champion here? Can I achieve this skill versus the experience of just being inside of your body? And so for me, this animal flow practice, this quadrupedal movement practice can be so many different things. So for me, it may just be the mindful, mindful connection of my brain and body, my mind, and how I can actually inhabit my system. Or I may use this as an opportunity to increase my mobility. So maybe the way in which I practice animal flow will have more of a uh, mobility focus. Maybe the next time I come in, it will have more of a strength power focus. Maybe the next time I come in, I'm now working on freestyle arrangements or freestyle expression. So to kind of give a, a big answer back to, to your question, it's if I had an athlete who was expressing their body in all these different ways, I could then use animal flow as a tool to say, all right, well, let's use this to fill in this gap, or let's use this to try to get a different response. Since you're already doing this in parkour, you're already doing this when you're practicing jujitsu or playing jujitsu. So it can really be what you want of it. So you can customize it. You can, you can practice it however you see fit. Um, I love that. I've just, <laughs> in, in several of the interviews I've heard you say, it's not dogmatic. And I really appreciate yeah. that. Because I'm laughing because I'm thinking of how many coaches I know who are like, get, get upset if it's not their stuff that's happening in a session. <laughs> right? Yeah. You're not using our stuff, right? You're not using our stuff. You should use our stuff. So I, I just love to hear that you're like, no, 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 take it, use it, take the pieces and, and, and put them out there. So one of the pieces of what animal flow is, is, is it's, is it's a reconnection to the, the power and value of quadrupedal movement. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you, you've said that you got some of that from, from experiencing B-boy. Um, you've also talked about your experience with parkour. I want, I'm curious, this is a short question. Did you ever do one of the Yamakaze quadrupedal movement workouts? 
Uh, I didn't do that specific workout, but it was through parkour. That was my first introduction to animal locomotion. So yeah, that okay. was the very first time that I'd ever experienced animal locomotion. And, and, you know, just to give anyone who's listening a little bit of information, a lot of people hear animal flow and they think that it's all about animal locomotion. And that's actually pretty far from the truth. We do use some animal locomotion. We actually, uh, in our level one, we call it the ABCs of traveling form. So ape, beast, and crab. And the thing that was so exciting to me about looking at these different patterns is, you know, I was coming from this background as a trainer and, you know, as a trainer who really, really pushed, you know, I, could, I was continuously pushing my understanding of anatomy and functional anatomy and biomechanics. And so whenever I first started looking, because I had that lens, when I first started looking at quadrupedal animal locomotion, I was like, holy shit, this is so cool because just depending upon which animal we're choosing to act like, we're stressing very specific lines of tissues. So whether that, you know, if you're coming from Thomas Meyer's work and you're looking at anatomy trains, or if you're coming from uh, uh, like muscular subsystems, doesn't matter what the vernacular is that you're using, like you can see that muscles don't work in isolation, they, they work in integration. And whenever you have these ground-based quadrupedal patterns, you can very easily see like, wow, this, this locomotive pattern stresses all of the tissue that I would have to go and do eight work, you know, eight exercises for to stress the same tissue. And then I just flip over and I do a crab walk. And then now that's literally the complementary synergistic tissue that now that's being stressed. And it's just, to me, it was like, it was this huge light bulb moment where I was just like, man, this is so cool because not only can we kind of sneak in the vegetables, you know, like give the people what they need, but also they can actually have fun doing it. Because I was also coming from this corrective exercise background where it was like, all right, let's look at postural distortions. Look, let's look at what's, you know, inhibited, what's, uh, you know, weak and long, et cetera. And, and so it was really dissecting the human body. And, you know, as good as that is, and as much benefit as that has, people get bored to tears sometimes when you're like, all right, let's do an hour of corrective exercise. <laughs> as much as their body could benefit from it, they just don't want to do it. But if you, you know, you allow them to experience something that's challenging, it's fun and it's engaging, they want to do it. Then now it's like, they're, they're putting, they're doing the work that they need to be doing, but they're doing it in a way that actually fulfills them, excites them, makes them want to come back and do it more. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, this is one of my big messages with Evolve Move Play. And we recently had Jackie Wu on, who's a friend of ours, who's really doing this in the therapy setting, really bringing the play in. It's like, you have to, you have to attend to motivation, right? You can't, Right. People are not machines. You can't give them prescriptions like they're machine, right? You got to yeah. look at how, how, what's the delivery mechanism that gets them to do the, the, to put, to sneak those vegetables in basically. Right. Yeah. So, um, so that's one of the things I'm interested in. I, I, I kind of want to ask a very specific question and maybe it'll mm -hmm. un, unfold something. But there's a movement, I think it's the under switch, right? Where you yeah. have um, one hand down the cross lateral foot on the ground and then the leg through, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this looks, well, it's essentially identical to the position we use in parkour called a step vault. And it's uh -huh. also shows up in capoeira as negachiva. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, there's an interesting thing that you do. You have your, uh, you know, for those of you who are listening to this, you're, you have the, 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 the opposite hand, the hand that's not down, raised up above you and pulled mm -hmm. back so that the palm of the hand is facing outward from the face. 
And it's, it's a, to me, it's an interesting little detail. And as I was doing your exercise at the embodiment conference, I was really curious about that, right? And how that reflects some of this, what I think is going on underneath the surface of animal flow, which is all the, the, the fascial meridians and all the thinking mm. around that, that influences the specific way you do quadrupedal movement. So can you tell me a little bit about that choice and maybe how that relates to what, what, what are those vegetables you're trying to sneak in? Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes, for sure. So, you know, one of the things, and this is something that we get, we get shit about all the time, right? Is people see animal flow and because our brains work through association, it's, it's really easy for us to go, oh, well that looks like this thing. So that's just a rip off of a rip off of this thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Which I fully understand. And I'm not mad about because they just don't know what the actual intention is or goal behind the system. And I think the power of any system is what are you trying to achieve and what is the goal of that system? So will all ground-based movements eventually look alike? A hundred percent. But what are you trying to achieve with that particular movement? Because, you know, our human bodies potentially only have so many movements possible. Of course, we're kind of figuring out new ones quite often, depending upon what you're into. But um, eventually those things are going to look similar. So whenever the movement that you're talking about is a, what, what we call a side kick through. And, you know, it, does it, it looks similar to uh, the vault that you were talking about. It looks similar to a sit through. It looks similar to a lot of different movements and a lot of different uh, practices. Whenever I was looking at this potential movement or whenever I was, I was looking at the, uh, the specifics of this movement, essentially, we're transitioning through this window that we've created. Oh, sorry. And it also is, has similarity, similarities in, in breaking as well. So as we transition into this movement, one leg is extended. The opposing arm is pulling in the opposing direction. So the elbow is pulling away from the big toe on the kicking leg. So if we start to break that down, one, in animal flow, we shouldn't be, we're not trying to engage in combat with anybody else. This is a self-practice. Right. So one, that's why we plant our flexor pointed toes, because we're not hopefully going to be kicking anyone in animal flow. If we do something's gone horribly wrong. Um, and if we start to look at the tissue and when I say tissue, I'm just meaning, you know, we could say soft tissue, we could say muscular tissue, we could say connective tissue, whatever. But we're just looking at these synergistic lines of tissue that are coming all the way from the foot through the leg up through our abdominal region and into the opposing arm. Now, if we're looking at that congruency of line of tissue, some people would call that uh, front functional line. Again, if you're used to anatomy training, some people would call that our anterior oblique sling and then it's continuations out through the arm and leg lines. So it's our goal in that side kick through to load that sling of tissue long. So what I mean by loading it long is we're trying to take it and take the big toe away from the opposite elbow and load it by exposing it in long lever to gravity's downward pull, like I was mentioning earlier. So we're, we're taking that continuous line of, of tissue from opposite shoulder to opposite hip and then out to the foot and hand. And we're trying to take that tissue, wring it out in length, but then also because the levers are longer, we're trying to allow, again, gravity to load that tissue. So we're very specifically looking at what these little micro positions are useful for for our human and human anatomy versus just saying well this looks cool or it's you know it's prettier if we bring our arm up like this that's just not the case you know and 
to be quite honest. There are some movements that we do add flair to, or you know, um, we 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 try to make them look cooler as a stylistic option. But in the foundations, the the level one, the kind of foundational movements in animal flow, we're always looking at how do we how do we tweak this movement to better engage or or challenge our anatomical structure. So when you see someone do a side kick through, it's it's not because we're just trying to make it look cool. It's because we're trying to allow that tissue to be loaded and excited, but then also getting in and out of that, we're creating this opportunity for this reflexive uh, communication of kinetic energy. So being able to get in and out of a side kick through without those exact parameters, we're creating this reflexive strategy where we're trying to get that tissue to become more, um, more um, elastic. So allowing us, us to, to elongate that tissue so that it can then snap back. So it's not that we're just trying to create stability through that tissue, but we're also looking at the potential to create a kinetic reflexive energy there. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about your take on how we cultivate elasticity and how things like animal flow can, can help us with that. I, as a, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, things that create more compression in the body versus more elasticity to some degree. And I think, you know, you've talked about your journey from essentially heavy weightlifting, kettlebells, Olympic lifts, and that at some point, like that was breaking your body down. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is at the center of our physical culture right now is these heavy axial loading, right? And it, it works to some degree. Like I've gone through, like I had a similar experience, right? I, I got into the CrossFit along with parkour. And then I was doing Mark Ripito's, you know, um, mm -hmm. uh, starting strength program. So I ended up deadlifting 440 pounds uh, for a set of five and uh, back squatting five, 355 for a squat of five. I don't know. It was 415 deadlift for five, 441. And then, you know, but you know, whatever, heavy. Mm -hmm. uh, I did Fran really fast and, and my movement quality was terrible. <laughs> Like, mm -hmm. like people were like, all of a sudden they're like, you look so heavy, you're moving so heavy. And then I went through a series of like massive injuries. And then I found ways to utilize, I still utilize uh, weights as a tool, but I'm, I have a very different relationship with them and what I'm trying to create. But it seems like to me, like if we look at the capoeira uh, negativa, it's a more compressed position because it's a defensive position. Yes. And in parkour, I have this sense that a lot of times we're a little bit afraid of the environment for good reason, mm -hmm. but it tends to to get the, the it tends to um, have the athlete adopt a strategy of getting tighter and a little bit closed in. It's like fetal position to protect the the organs when yes. you're throwing yourself the vital organs. hard, yeah. <laughs> hard concrete objects all the time. And I see the same thing in martial artists. And that's one thing that I like about dance actually is that it 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 it, it it counteracts that it teaches people how to open and we need that openness in order to really be optimally bouncy. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I'm just curious to, to hear you talk a little bit more about how you're, you're trying to address that and, and how you see the interrelationship between a system like animal flow and having the hard impacts of parkour or the heavy loading of uh, weightlifting or the, 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 the grappling and the intensity and the fear that can potentially happen there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, you had, you had alluded to this earlier, you may have even said, uh, uh, cause you'd mentioned contraction and expansion. 
And those are two things that we're always looking at in the animal flow practice. So, you know, it's because this is a body practice and that's it. You know, again, the, the goal is, is it, we're never going to be in a defensive position because we're never defending ourselves from somebody else. Um, we're, we're always going to have the safety of the ground there. And I think the safety of the ground is what gives us the freedom to express all of those different things, like the ability to expand and then contract or vice versa. So quite often when we're looking at someone really starting to understand flow, that's when we, we kind of drop the, the anatomical stuff. We kind of drop some of the, the foundational concepts and we go, all right, let's really look at how you're able to inhabit your body. And I love that you brought up dance because when you're watching someone really practice animal flow and you can see that they have a high level of proficiency in it, it mu looks much more like a dance, right? It looks like they have this incredible ability to manipulate their body and use their energy strategically. So whenever we're looking at somebody move and they're performing a flow on the ground, we'll start to break down their movements no longer by the name of the movements, the direction, blah, 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 but we're starting to look at how they're manipulating energy. So anytime that we see someone begin to, maybe they start a rotation and that rotation continues in that direction, we call that an energy roll. And so they're taking the momentum or the force that they've generated and they're becoming more efficient with it because they're starting to actually move with it. So they're having to produce less and less because there's a certain amount of energy rotation that they've, they've actually created. Anytime they take that energy and they move it somewhere else. So maybe they move it up, they move it down, they move it backwards. We call that an energy redirect. So they're breaking that, that, that initial motion and they're pushing that energy somewhere else. Then the last thing is something we call an energy break. So they're actually creating energy to stop energy. And that may look like a very dramatic pause after one of those kick throughs that we were talking about earlier, or maybe that we suddenly stop and then change direction. So, when you put on that lens or you, or, sorry, we put on those glasses, those like energy glasses, and you can actually start to, to, to see how someone moves through space as if you have like, they have like glow sticks on them or something, you know, and we're watching how they can manipulate their energy. Um, it really does become this super, super cool opportunity for them to add complexity by changing not only their energy direction, but changing the tempo at which they experience the movement. And then also going through these alter, alter, alternating compression and expansion opportunities. Because in animal flow, we certainly don't want to stay compressed all of the time. We want to have these, these, these moments of becoming long and open and allowing our tissue and our expression to be wide. And then we, we want to, to um, then contract again in order for us to get through a movement that we've created and allow that energy to go somewhere else. So, I think the thing that's so unique about that is because it is a body practice where you're not engaging with anyone else. And it is a practice to where you have all of these, what we call movement windows, where if you have hands and feet in contact with the ground, now there are lots of opportunities to bring a hand through, bring, bring an arm through, bring a leg through. And that just opens up this wide array of possibilities for you to express those things like you mentioned, like contraction and expansion. So I think in that way, there are some unique things there that um, maybe some other practices don't offer. Interesting. The, the description of the energy um, energy loop, did you call it? Or what was the first term? Uh, energy. Yeah, so um, energy rolls, redirects, Energy rolls. Energy rolls, yeah. uh, rebounds, breaks. Um, 
I had a similar conception that came up for me when I first started uh, playing with uh, contemporary dance. Have you encountered uh, Tom Wexler? I know a lot about Tom. I've never yeah. taken a workshop or had any yeah, yeah. contact with him. Yeah. So I, I, I met Shira and then Shira Z from the Athletic Playground, who's part of that kind of same lineage of, of, of teaching and exploration of dance in Capoeira. Um, she was Tom's teacher back in the day. Um, mm. So I met her and then I did some stuff with her and then I went to one of Tom's workshops and then I was also taking contemporary dance. So contemporary dance was incredibly humbling for me because I, I walked into an advanced professional class thinking it was a beginner class and got thrown into a 36 piece choreography without any names oh, wow. for any of the skills. Um, <laughs> but I, but I, I fought through it for a few weeks, but I got some good stuff out of it. And I really liked the mental challenge of having to do the choreography. So I built this choreography piece that I was teaching at the workshop and I was trying to, to get people to understand it. And I was, I was, it almost felt like skiing to me in a weird mm -hmm. way, because it was like, you were finding this this flow and then the flow could either continue a circle or it could hit the end of a circle and bounce back yeah excuse me not be happening um uh yeah and and so so that 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 sense of awareness of how your body is where the energy is going and then the ability to either find the line that it's already going on or how to use your tissues to bounce it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. Um, I think that's such a, it's such a cool thing. And I do think that there's something about a practice that's on the ground that helps sensitize us to that. And also practice that has a little bit of athleticism. I think sometimes mm -hmm. the really slow somatic practices, they don't give you enough information to really attune into that. Yeah, absolutely, man. And um, yeah, I, so there, there are a couple things there and to me, free flow. So getting to the point to where you can turn off and absolutely just allow your body and your brain and your mind to all be one is that's the, the pinnacle of movement in my practice, right? So the, the moment that I can stop thinking and go off of feeling the energy change, feeling the tissue become elastic, feeling when it's time to take uh, a change in how I'm manipulating through space. Like that is one of the most exciting things to me about my personal practice, which is also brings up a really great question that I wanted to, to ask, ask you. Um, whenever we're looking at free flow and whatever free flow is, whenever you're looking at, at free flow what do you think is the best way in which someone can prepare themselves physically, mentally, in order to really, really be successful at the experience of no longer having to think about it, of, of relying on the time that they put into their training over the years, months, however long it's been? Yeah, so I, I draw a big distinction between flow in movement and flow perceptually or flow as a mental state. And so I'm not sure which one you're, you're hundred percent. So let's, let's leave the mental state. Let's say that flow and movement of course is going to have a, a, yeah. a mental state to it, but let's go away from flow state and mm -hmm. stay more in just the physical part of flow. Yeah. So I have a, 
uh, a whole kind of thing about that within parkour particularly, right? That mm -hmm. flow in parkour is the combination of your ability to control the direction of your inertia. So if we go mm -hmm. back to what we were talking about a moment before, to sense where your, your momentum is already carrying you and then have the ability to either harvest that momentum and keep it going or the ability to set your body up to create an elastic rebound out of it and go in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. So that's the control of your capacity for, uh, for the direction of your inertia. The second piece is displacement, like keeping your body moving um, with, the minimal, uh, with minimal unnecessary vertical movement, right? So mm -hmm. often when somebody is learning a parkour vault, they'll, they'll go way higher than they need to when they're going over the vault. And so this big sort of up and down movement is going to, is going to kill your, your, your forward momentum. And also it's much harder on your body. So that ability to control the displacement up and down. So we have direction, displacement, and then rhythm, right? So, there, so if you're like running up to a vault, um, there's gonna be an optimal series of steps between you and the vault at any time, right? And so your sense of the rhythm of the movement and the ability to stay within the rhythm or to make the micro adjustments rather than macro adjustments to the rhythm. Mm -hmm. that's, that's this huge aspect of your ability to have good flow. And then, then, then there's the aspect of your ability to, to essentially orient yourself through space. So how am I moving in such a way that I'm aware of and able to actually flow my perceptual abilities through the space in such a way that it that it lets me that it lets me get the information I need to organize myself. So another mm -hmm. thing that you'll see very often in parkour is that when somebody puts their hands down on a vault, they'll um, they'll look exactly at their hands for a long period of time, and then there's a perceptual lag before they can react to the next movement. And a more advanced mm -hmm. practitioner will have the the control of the uh, of the interaction with the object on the hands or feet in the peripheral vision and have their focal vision already moving towards the next thing um, and then the last piece is basically understanding how to organize your structure how to how to optimize the positions that your body's in so that you're always able to produce force to move you from one place to another and so mm -hmm. then I, I break those pieces down and look at like where might an athlete be struggling right are they struggling with kind of always having this sloppy direction that's moving, you know? And I think this would show up in animal flow too, right? They're, they're falling in unbalanced, unstable in some direction that's not what's trying to happen in that sequence. Um, and, and, then, and then that gives you a sense for how to challenge the athlete and what to make, help them become aware of so that they can refine those pieces. So that's the, the evolving play sort of structure of flow. I love that. Have you seen that structure? And I think that's brilliant, by yeah. the way. Have you seen that structure carry over into your experience with dance? So like in some of your dance experiences, have you seen similarities there or is that a totally different ball game? I haven't thought about it. Um, I, mm -hmm. I'd have to think about it a little bit. I think there's obviously commonalities, like obviously rhythm yeah. is central. Um, and uh, the directionality thing is really big because you have, when, whenever you're in a dance piece or choreographer, choreography, there's a sort of direction really that all of your limbs should be moving. And then there's this potential for noise that, mm -hmm. that isn't contributing to 
whatever the intention of the movement is, whether it's aesthetic or emotional or something. And an athlete who's less attuned to what they're trying to do in that space is going to be much more likely to produce these kind of um, noisy extra movements. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and then the displacement thing is a little bit different. Like in dance, you're, you're, you're it, it plays to some degree, but like when you're thinking about parkour, you're thinking about efficiency, the, the way that I'm thinking about it, right? And so it's like, I don't want to go higher over an object than I need to because, because it slows me down. But in a dance situation, it's not necessarily about that. Like, you know, if mm -hmm. I'm jumping in dance, I want to jump as high as I can because it's most aesthetic to jump as high as I can. Yeah. Right. And I want to displace my legs as much as possible so that I look even higher than I am. And I have these beautiful lines. So there's probably other elements that would come out. I, I tried to break down the elements of free running as opposed to parkour back in uh -huh. the day. And I was talking about like lines. You have to understand lines. If you, you know, if you want to have the most aesthetic style, you have to understand like the amplitude, right? I want like take a vault, right? You have the, the most efficient version of it but that's not necessarily the coolest looking version of it. So mm -hmm. I might intentionally swing my legs super high and make these really beautiful shapes and like try to create some kind of interesting line or shape through the space with my legs. If I was going to use that dance, that, that vault in a dance scenario. Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of those things would, would translate, but they'd have slightly different coatings and there might be some pieces mm -hmm. that I don't understand that you'd need to add to, to fully articulate what's happening within dance. Yeah, and you know, the only reason that I even bring that up is because I'm always interested to see how people, what is someone's training strategy that primes them to get into the space to where they don't have to think about their training. They don't have to think about all of the repetitions, but they can just truly go on autopilot. They can truly feel the movement versus thinking about the movement. Yeah. And, you know, to me, it's, it is the structure that gives us freedom, you know, and one of the things I always say is, you know, we have to conquer through the structure in order for us, or sorry, we have to suffer through the structure in order for us to conquer the chaos. And the chaos to me is flow. That is the time that's life. That's uh, the, the, the thing that pops up that you're unexpecting, you know, that's the chaos. The structure is all the time that we spend doing the repetitions, checking technique, really focusing on form. Because in, in my eyes, it's like, you know, if you walk into a dance class and they're like, here, we're going to put on some music for you. You're just going to dance. <laughs> that, could, <laughs> that could be a really one, a super nerve wracking experience, uh, quite terrifying. But then also, if you don't have the tools, how are you expected to just find flow or find your groove or whatever? But, you know, you teach someone three moves and you say, okay, you have these three building blocks. Now you can improv with this. Now you can explore. Same thing with, uh, with music, you know, you teach someone three chords and now they can really start to explore this musical instrument. But it does take some sort of, of foundational building blocks. It does take some foundational building blocks. And to me, in, in my experience through any type of movement, it's really, really focusing on the details will eventually lead to the freedom. Yeah, I, uh, I, I resonate a lot with that the most frustrating learning experience I ever had was a creative writing class where they refused to tell us anything about what makes good writing. Like it was a postmodernism sort of inflected class. And so there was no, there was no direction as to, which was weird because they gave us grades. 
<laughs> so it's like, there's no criteria, but you're going to be judged. Um, so it was incredibly frustrating. And I actually like wrote this whole, like my final essay was just, this class sucks and here's why. <laughs> but, but it drove me crazy. You know, it was like, yes, sometimes you break the rules, right? Mm -hmm. But you have to understand, you have to actually have some set of rules. And um, because the rules orient you and without orientation, there's nothing that happens. So yeah. people look at children's play and they think that it's just free but kids are actually constantly, constantly creating rules to structure a game. And you'll, if you watch them play, you'll see that they're negotiating the rules all the time. And they're, and they're playing in really specific ways. They're playing in ways that are, they're reflective of innate underground characteristics and they're reflective of the culture that they experience because they're trying to figure out what the rules are and how to play out the rules effectively. So if your kid is playing house, right, they're, they, like little kids play house, right? And what do they do? They, they go to work and they come home and they make dinner and they nurse the baby and they sweep the living room. And it's like, that's not random, right? There's a reason that that happens, right? And they wrestle. And what's the like, you know, there's universal aspects to wrestling. You knock somebody down, you try to hold them down, right? You try to make them submit. Like those things, those things are throughout every culture in the world, and they're also in other animals. So um, I think that our culture has actually become overly focused on freedom and not focused enough on, on, on building, I guess, or structure, right? Yeah. Like, I think it was, you know, Jung talks about this, right? And his, his whole process of individuation is based on this idea that like, you can't, you can't get to freedom without going through structure. You, you, mm -hmm. you know, you, I think he, I, I'm not sure if this is true, but I think he basically says that no man can be free who hasn't been a slave. It's like yeah. you have to voluntarily enslave yourself to a routine, to a structure, to a, to a thing, to, uh, to a practice in order to find the freedom within it. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, there's a beautiful chapter on that called apprenticeship in uh, Jordan Peterson's Maps of Meaning and, and the cultural process of apprenticeship. So, yeah. Yeah, there's uh, two books I just finished, The Obstacle is the Way and Mastery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. definitely both of those are on the same tip. <laughs> yeah, I, I really need to read that one, the Ryan Holiday one, that one's, that one's on, my, on my list for sure. I wanted to ask you kind of a, a question that I don't know, maybe I'm hoping this will be a unique question, but it's something I'm very curious about. I think when you come from a movement perspective, like like I, I, I've been on the outskirts of the fitness world, I've lifted weights, I've done that, I've taught at CrossFit gyms, but I was a martial artist starting when I was six years old. And then I was a gymnast at 15 and then I was in parkour. And so like whenever I was doing fitness, it was always to serve the physical practice. And I feel like a lot of times there's a certain elitism from people who, who have that perspective when they look at fitness. And so, so it's like, well, you know, you should just be doing movement. You should be out here in the woods with me. You should be doing this. And, um, and you know, I've had that attitude towards animal flow in the past and then, mm -hmm. I, you know, or, or something like Zumba. And now my, my attitude towards it has changed. And, and one thing that that's really curious to me actually is the role of these practices as a group ritual. Yeah. I, I'll say more if you want me to, but I, I, but 
how does animal do, do you see animal flow as for as as acting in some way as a ritual for people and yeah and, and how what does that yeah mean? so i have to say so going back uh you know years ago i was i grew up skateboarding so that was like a, a yeah. really big thing for me i mean i up until i was 16, I would have, if you asked me what I was going to do when I grew up, I would say I was going to be a professional skateboarder. Yeah. And one of the things that I loved about skateboarding is that it was something that you could do in a group dynamic, but it was all just about your individual practice. And you weren't competing with each other necessarily. You were for the most part kind of building each other up and challenging each other to grow. Um, and it was just, it, the group dynamic just really resonated with me. I then went on to, uh, I became a musician, started playing in, in a couple of different bands and a similar thing, you know, you're, you're all working individually, but as a collective, you're creating music and, um, you know, has similar characteristics. I believe it was whenever I first started getting into uh, parkour, that's when I realized that there were a lot of similarities to the time that I spent skateboarding. And there was this really, really cool group dynamic. You're all pushing each other, but at the same time pushing yourself. And it was exciting. And it was like, you, you know, it, it, it just like, it, it resonated with me on such a high level. And whenever I got into animal flow, when I first started teaching classes, so I was trying, as I was figuring out the system, I first started teaching it with my clients first so my one-on-one -on -one clients and then i started offering classes to the other clients in the gym because i was working at this small personal training collective and the immediate bonds that i was seeing each one of these participants making with each other one i was like wow i've never actually seen this in a group fitness class before or even in like a workout focused class before there's something very unique here there was something collective about the experience you know everyone was working individually but they were working together to try to figure out this new thing that they had never experienced before so i knew that community was always going to be a really important role in animal flow is going to be one of our pillars in animal flow because our main goal aside from everything else is to inspire other people to learn how to move their bodies and that's it you know if everything else is taken away that's the goal inspire other people to, to take ownership over the bodies and learn how to move and do it in a way that feels creative and fun to them. And as we started to certify people in animal flow, and as we kept that as being this really important underlying message that was consistent all the way across the board, we started realizing that one, the people who were drawn to this style of working out, or not, not working out, sorry, this style of practice had a lot of similarities. So they had a lot of similarities. And one of those things was that they, they loved being part of the whole. So there was, there was no hierarchy. There was no dogma, as we mentioned earlier. There was no elitism. It was everyone's welcome. The barrier for entry is low. You can start with just the basics or you can choose to get deeper into it. You can take apart the program. You can use what works, leave the rest behind. And just giving people the freedom and knowing that it was the goal was for us to push this this concept of everyone moving more across the globe it just fit it worked and we started to see where people who were instructors or people who practice animal flow and this is when travel was still very free would travel around the world and just find another person who practiced animal flow and they would get together and they would have this bonding experience where they would move together they would eat together they would show them their culture they would learn together 
And even in our, what we call our animal flow language, we, we requested everyone that practices it because we call out this language to each other. We use the English versions of the words and the formula and how we call them out. That's the same. But anywhere that you would go, you would you know, hear them use their native word for direction being left or right or limb being arm or leg. But the cool thing is because the formula is so specific, you could go anywhere in the world and call out animal flow to somebody else and they would understand if they understood that animal flow language. And to me, there's just something incredibly just profound about that. They're like, we all speak the same language, both mm -hmm. verbally and through movement. We could speak this, these languages together. And, um, you know, it just became like the thing that probably I'm most excited about with the animal flow practice and the system is just that people love to share it with each other. That's why when you see people like as a group performing animal flow, like a sequence, it may look like it's a choreographed dance, but it's something that they're all experiencing together. And, you know, they're, they're working on their individual expression of this thing as a whole. And yeah, that's been really cool to watch. Yeah. I, I love that answer. And it's, it's cool to see that how much that, uh, that matters to you. Right. Yeah. As you speak about it, you can see the passion that it brings up for you. And it sounds like it wasn't it wasn't necessarily the intention either. It was a thing that it wasn't in the beginning. It was discovered. Which yeah. is you know, that's kind of like what's happened with our retreats. It was like the retreats were about teaching parkour and martial arts skills in nature. And then it was like, well, actually, it's about how people transform and, and the community. And that, that's what the, that's what the students told you, told me was changing, right? And so it's yeah. cool when you discover those things. And I was thinking about this because I'm, I'm I just finished or I'm just finishing a book called uh, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, and mm. he he was talking about how human beings have this basically group selection for we, we've been selected to be good members of groups to some degree, and and there are triggers that make us feel more we and less I, and one of the really profound ones is syncopated movement with other people. So if we're doing movement with other people um, and we're all doing the same thing, that tends to trigger this really intense we state. And that's something very ecstatic, right? That's, um, you know, what they talk about is communitas in, um, mm -hmm. in uh, like uh, Jamie Wheel and Stephen Collar's book, uh, Catching Fire. It's something that we're really craving. And, and, and even, you know, the movements themselves, like having this specific story around them or having this, like, like I always had this thing about like, you know, I don't do animal movements. I'm a human. I do human movements. Right. And I've heard you say, say some of the same things, but, but human beings do mimic animals. That's something that's, yeah. that's unique to us compared to other animals. And it's, and it's meaningful across all these different cultures. And so you're playing with something archetypal almost when you get people mm -hmm. down and get them in, in the mindset of an ape. And then you have a whole room of 30 people in the mind of an ape in some sense. And then sharing that, and that that is like a, a really profound ritual that bonds people. Um, and I think that there's something really powerful and profound about that that's not fully respected yet in the movement and, and, and fitness space and how much that it can offer. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree. And I, you know, I'm excited to see just from my own knowledge, I'm excited to see where this goes, like, you know, as, as science catches up, you know, as we're, we're seeing more studies being done, like, 
it is the community part. Like there's something there that there, there is the group dynamic that, yeah, it feels natural. It feels like we want to be there, but I, I truly don't understand what are the details yet? Yeah. Yeah. So I would definitely love, I would love to uh, pass on that book for me. Yeah. I'll I'll send it to you. Um, And while we're on that, that the links me back to something I wanted to mention earlier. And you you mentioned the idea that humans are inherently lazy, right? Uh, Or that, Uh, or at minimum that we're, that we seek efficiency. Yeah. And, And I think that this is true, but I also think that there's something missing there, which is that we do have a drive to move. And sometimes in the yes. fitness community, we talk about, about it's as if the only thing that that's going to get us moving is some kind of pure discipline. Um, but I don't yeah. think that works. I think that you have to have some underlying start. And it's like something called you when you were 30 to, to try these things and kept you going in them. And, and, I, and so I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about this question of, this is where play comes up for me. And, and these other things is like, I feel like in a lot of ways, it's not, people are disconnected from movement, not because that's the inevitable result of living in a high comfort society. They're disconnected from movement because we've stripped them of the cultural, the, of the cultural permissions to move and of the institutions that are about movement. Like we've taken, we don't have group rituals for movement and dance that used to exist all over the world. Um, and I think that when we think about like, we have a $30 billion fitness industry that's largely, this is completely a failure. Let's let's just be honest. Like we have the least fit people in, in, in human history. And the question is, well, there's this huge group of people who are in fitness, who are trying, right? Who are failing to live up to their gym membership, but they want to, or they're in and out, or they, or even they're, they're in it and they're, they're fit, but they're miserable, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, what, is, what are our bridges, right? And, and as I was thinking about this conversation with you, I was like, oh, that ritual, that group, that, and this is something that I think empowered CrossFit too, like do the same workout with a bunch of other people, do the same workout with people all over the world, do it and sweat together. Um, I think there's something incredibly powerful about that. So I think, I guess this will be my final question to you. What is a world where movement is, is, a, is truly incorporated into society appropriately look like? And how would you like animal flow to participate in creating that world? Yeah. So you brought up such a great point there, which is, you know, the way, one of the ways that we can tackle this or unpack this is look at the difference between exercise and movement, excuse me. Sorry, I lost you there. Looks like yeah. I may, my computer may die shortly. I'll have to plug it in. Okay. Um, you know, because exercise, you know, can be movement and vice versa. But the thing is, most people look at exercise as something that they have to do. Mm-hmm. I have to do this because I'm told that I have to do this, or I have to do this in order for me to lose weight. I have to do this because my, I have high blood pressure. I have to do this versus I want to move more. Like, I love this thing, so I want to do it more. And you can have the best workout program. You can have the best design. You can have the thing that your body needs. But if you don't like it, you're not going to do it. And, you know, the, there's, there's that, that, that opportunity to 
find out what is the thing that motivates you? What is the thing that you enjoy? What is the thing that really just fits with who you are? And how do we find that? Because, you know, we're, we're, we're essentially the way in our design, we're in constant search of things that, that stimulate dopamine, right? So we're constantly looking for dopamine. And even when we work out, we, let's say, you know, you've heard of like the runner's high, or let's say that, you know, our body rewards us for, 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 for our, the movement that we do because we feel good when we do it. Versus if you have someone who, what, what they think will make them happy is the end result. So it's not the actual doing of the thing. It's that whenever I do the thing, I get a result. Maybe by summer, I can wear my bikini or my thong or my whatever. And so I'm looking at what I want to get out of this. What does my reward system want out of this? So I need to put in the time and do the work so that I can have this payoff down the road. I don't like doing it, but I'm really looking at how my body's going to look afterwards. I don't know that that's always going to be the best driving force for every single person. It, does it work for some people? Sure. But it sucks to me that they're not enjoying that time. And not to say that people don't enjoy working out. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying when you find the thing that you love, when you find the movement journey that really, really works for who you are, then it's no longer working out. It's no longer exercising. It's no longer this thing that you have to do. It's the thing that you choose to do. So in a world that, that is more focused on movement, the ideal world for me would be creating scenarios to where more people could find out what that thing is that they love. And I don't know what that looks like because it's so individual to every single person. But getting away from this, this idea of exercise, we have to exercise, we have to exercise, but getting more to the thing that I love to do this thing and it allows me to move and it, it fulfills me in so many ways. So as far as what animal flow looks like in that type of world, hopefully animal flow is one of those things that somebody falls in love with, you know, and, and for some people it may not work and that's totally fine with me, but to be an option, to be the thing that brings somebody to begin their movement journey, I'm happy to be a part of that in some way. So it doesn't have to be the only thing. It doesn't have to be for everyone, but to just to know that it's an option. I feel like I've done a little bit of something with my time here. Beautiful. Thank you for that answer. And um, we've come right about to the end of the, of the time we had set aside for the interview. Um, so why don't you tell people where they can find Animal Flow, how they can get involved, uh, what the next steps are. But yeah, should we cool. just so, stop for a second and have you connect your computer so you don't die while you're giving yeah, your answer? Yeah, it's probably a good idea. <laughs> so apologize, technical difficulties. We'll have uh, Mike back here in a second. Oh. Yeah. This is one of those annoyingly short chords. <laughs> is it a Mac? Uh, yeah, so it's it's the new iPhone charger, but it's a, it's an iPad that I'm using. Okay. So I'll just I'll just chill on the ground. I'm happy to be on the ground. Uh, okay, so to find out more about Animal Flow, just www.animalflow.com. Uh, if you're looking there because you want to start your animal flow journey, we have free fit, free videos there on, and on YouTube that you can experience. And then um, we also have an on-demand channel there if you feel like checking out classes, flows, and tutorials. And then we do do workshops that are both open to fitness professionals and for anyone interested in um, moving along their animal flow practice. So 
Beautiful. Yeah. Okay. So that's going to conclude the interview portion. We're going to stick around and do a question and answer uh, for all the folks in the uh, MP uh, podcast plus membership. So if you'd like to be on that next time, uh, make sure to hit the link in the description and get yourself signed up. Um, but for now, we're going to end the live stream and um, just uh, let people come in and ask their questions. Cool. Thanks for having me, buddy. Absolutely. So much fun, Mike. I really enjoyed the conversation. And um, yeah, so all of you guys who are in the audience, you can unmute and uh, open your, your cameras and, and ask your questions. Hey, you've reached the end of another Involvement with Play podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, if you want to be involved in the conversation, please consider joining us in our new membership subscription so you can get access to question and answers with our live speakers once a month, question and answers with me once a month, and a dedicated forum to discuss everything going on in the podcast, as well as a general discussion of movement on our general movement forums. If you're interested in that, make sure to check out the link below, get signed up, and join a part of our membership community. If you can join our membership community right now, it's still always helpful if you can like, share, and subscribe, and even hit that bell and get notifications for upcoming Evolve with Play podcasts. But audios for now, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.